This morning we uh, are going to be looking at the conclusion of John chapter 14, and we're also going to take communion together this morning. Looking forward to that. You know, we learned in John chapter 10 that Jesus, he is the good shepherd, and we are his sheep. Everybody say, bah. Yes, we are his sheep. And he goes before his sheep, he prepares a way before them, and just as a shepherd over sheep will go into a field and inspect it for poisonous plants and other things that would hurt the sheep, Jesus also goes before us, he prepares a place for us that just like the good shepherd, he will cause us to lie down in green pastures and to lie down beside the still waters. And I'm looking forward to that day when our faith is complete and we are in his presence forevermore, aren't you? I'm looking forward to the rapture when he will take us to this place that he's been building. I believe it's New Jerusalem. And ultimately, he's going to bring that New Jerusalem down to to earth in a new heavens and new earth that he will create after the millennial reign of Christ. It tells us about that in Revelation 21 and 22. But Jesus told his disciples what was going to happen before it happened so that they wouldn't be afraid. And we saw at the beginning of the chapter, we saw that. He says, you know, um, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because after not knowing where he was going and and where he was going and, and where he was going, they couldn't come yet, and that Peter would deny him three times, I think they had reason to feel a little agitation. Wouldn't you feel agitated if the one that you've been serving, the one who was the Messiah is now? I mean, they they didn't quite get it. And I'm so glad that uh, I'm not any different than the disciples. And you know, the Lord doesn't expect you to be either. We are not super saints. We are not um, superhuman. And I love the fact that God puts these things in the Scripture for us because it helps us to understand that we are not finished yet. God is not finished with you and I. And he'll take the mess. He loves to take the mess. Whatever mess you are today, anybody a mess? I'm a mess. I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to lie to you. At least not about that. (laughs) No, but I'm a mess, and we are all a mess. And and we're all in these different places of, of understanding of who Jesus is, what he's come to do. So be encouraged in that, because as we look at the disciples, as we look at them foibling and looking at their struggles and their lapses of faith and the silly things, especially that Peter did, I have great comfort because we are in very good company. And you know, that's what the wonderful thing about being a child of God is we can just be who we are. We don't have to act like anything, right? Doesn't that make you feel better? You know, when you come into this church, you don't have to be anybody else other than who God has made you to be. And that's what makes our gathering together so wonderful. Where else in the world can we have so many different races of people, so many different backgrounds, so many different backgrounds, and yet we can all come here and we can be civil with one another, we can love one another? I mean, it's just unheard of. And yet that's our experience. And why is that? Because of him, because of Jesus Christ. He is the unifier. He is the one who brings unity. We just step into that unity and we enjoy it. And so they didn't know, so they had every reason to believe, uh, to be, for their heart to be troubled, at least at that point, because they didn't understand yet. And, and I really appreciate that. And although his disciples believed in him, again, they didn't have it all together. Just as we don't have it all together. 
But before Jesus came into Jerusalem the last time, he told his disciples on at least three occasions. He told them in Matthew chapter 16. He told them in Matthew 17. And finally, in Matthew 20, he says this to them. And this is something that you've heard before. Jesus told them in advance at least three times before he would go to Jerusalem to accomplish his death on the cross and rising from the grave. He said to them in verse 18 of Matthew 20, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. They didn't quite understand that either until after it had occurred, and yet he told them three times. I mean, if you're like me, I can be slow. And these guys were slow too. I mean, it took them an hour and a half to watch 60 minutes, right? That's the way it is with me too. I can be slow at times. But notice now in the passage that we're looking at, beginning in verse 15 today, that he tells them that his departure is near and that he would send another helper. In the New King James Version, it says helper. If you've got a King James, it says comforter. It doesn't matter what you want to call it. The Greek word is parakletos, which means um, is a helper, is somebody who comes alongside them, and we'll look at that shortly. But the Holy Ghost would be their comforter or helper after Jesus' departure. And they needed that help. They were going to be submerged in, in, into a time that was going to be very difficult. They would be persecuted. The church in the first century was terribly persecuted by the Romans and even by their fellow Jewish people. Even by the fellow Jews who were zealous for their religion and didn't understand that their religion was foretelling everything about Jesus Christ. It was all about him. And yet, when he finally came, they tripped over that stumbling block. But they needed that help after Jesus' departure. And you know what? So do we. In the days that we live in today, I believe the days that we live in today are, the, the, there's more deception. Jesus said, as, he, as, he, as we approach the time of his coming for the church in the rapture, as we approach that time, and certainly as we approach even after the rapture of the church, as the world gets ready for the great tribulation and Jesus' final coming to the earth in his second coming, deception is going to be the hallmark of the time. And we are seeing it right now. You've heard of this mass formation psychosis that's going on, and it is a real, very real thing. People don't know what to believe because of all the deception. The deception is so, so great right now. And if you don't have your head in the scriptures, if, you don't have a, a, if you're not grounded, if you're not abiding in Christ, you're going to be like a sail. You're going to be like a, 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 sailing, a, 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 a sailboat out on a hurricane out in the Gulf of Mexico. You're going to be all over the place. And God doesn't want you to be all over the place. He wants you to be firmly grounded, and you can be. You have to, you, there's a part of it that we have to do as well. We have to take the time and we have to settle our hearts. I love that last song, Peace. What a great song to, to listen to before you go to bed. I tell you, you listen to that on your headphones or put a timer on and have the song go after that, you're out like a light. But see, we need that. We need that peace. We need that settledness. We need it so badly. And so the Spirit of God is very interested in you right now, especially with what's going on in the world he wants to encourage us. He wants to embolden us. He wants to show us things to come, and he's doing it. He's doing it. 
And the work of the Holy Spirit has been maligned over the years. Throughout church history, there's been much that has been done, much that has been touted as being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but rather has been under the influence of the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of error. In fact, Satan has, he has sought to confuse and malign the work of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he wants to discredit Christ and he wants to counterfeit the work of the Holy Spirit. He's been doing a very good job at it, and many churches and many pastors are allowing that craziness to happen in their church. Aberrant things going on in churches that should never be named among the children of God, and yet they are. But whenever, whenever or wherever there is a man or a movement that is lifted up instead of Jesus Christ, that is the spirit of error. It is not the Spirit of God working because the work of the Holy Spirit is to do what? It's to honor and glorify Jesus Christ. That's what he has come to do, at least partly. He has come to honor and glorify Jesus. Did you ever notice the, the way that that is? The Spirit of God, the third in the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings glory to Jesus, and Jesus brings glory to his Father. That's the way it works. And yet they are one. They're unified. They are all God. One God in three persons. But we saw it on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God was poured out upon the believers. Many thought that they attributed it to alcohol, that somehow people were drunk. And so, again, the enemy trying to come in and malign what had been foretold for centuries that about that specific day, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God would be poured out upon his church, the devil was right there in the midst of it and trying to malign it, trying to get people to think differently about it. We saw it on the day of Pentecost. We also saw it with Ananias and Sapphira when God was doing such a wonderful thing in the hearts of people as they began to give as other people had needed, had needs. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted to do the same thing, but they were lying and they were hypocrites. And God struck them dead for it. That happened. But today we need to be discerning about the Holy Spirit. In fact, John in his first epistle in chapter 4, he said this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they, be, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So let me ask a question before I go on. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that Jesus is God. Is that the spirit of truth or the spirit of error? It's the spirit of error. Yes. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. Is it in the world today, the spirit of Antichrist? You better believe it. We're seeing it in Washington, D.C., we're seeing it in the hospitals. We're seeing it in the universities and the colleges all across this wonderful country of ours. The spirit of Antichrist, alive and well. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you, notice, in you, and, and I, I bring the emphasis now because of what we're getting into, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, the spirit of Antichrist, the devil himself, Satan. 
And they, um, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. They're so glad to hear them. But we are of God, and he who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And if Satan attacked the works of Jesus Christ, he will certainly attack the work of and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's been doing it for a long time. And over the next few chapters, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, we're going to see a lot about the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus is still in the upper room after this Passover meal. He is still in the upper room before he would be arrested, before they would go over to the Kidron and go over into the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. They're still in that upper room, and they call this the upper room discourse because he's continuing to prepare them for what is coming because he's told them in advance, way in advance, at least three times. Now he is at that meal hours before he would be taken and crucified, and he's still preparing them like a good shepherd. I just thought of a new slogan. Like a good shepherd, Jesus Christ is there. (laughs) Sorry about that, it just happened. Um, Yes, but it's true. (laughs) He's still preparing them because he still loves them. And he's preparing them. And aren't you glad, again, we've said this before, but aren't you glad for the word of God because of what it shows us in advance? We don't have to worry, folks. We've got the truth. And we know what's coming. We may not know the minutiae, of the days that we live in. We don't know the things that uh, might happen. We didn't know that there was going to be a, 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 you know, a hostage event in, in Texas last night or yesterday. We didn't know that. But God has given us the bigger picture. And to me, that's fine with me because that's all I really need to know because I need to know that at the end, he is there. and He's with us in the midst of it, right? And so we're going to be looking at that. And so we're going to find out who the Holy Spirit is, who he is and who he isn't over the next three chapters and what he has come to do, his work in the life of the believer. And who is the Holy Spirit? We know that he is the third person of the Godhead or the third person of the Trinity. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, or bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, who is Jesus Christ, the Logos, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. So he's the third member of this Trinity, and he is a person. He's not just some kind of impersonal force out there in the universe. And notice that it says that he's a he. He, not a she, not an it. God is not confused with pronouns like so many of the people, so many of the administrators in our schools. He knows who a male is. He knows who a female is. And he has no confusion about that. Why do we? It's because we've been influenced by the spirit of Antichrist. That is why. That's why we need to stand up. Everywhere where you hear that nonsense, we need to be lovingly rebuke it. Lovingly rebuke it. But the Holy Spirit can also be 
grieved. It tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 30, that the Spirit of God can be grieved. You can't grieve an impersonal force. You can't grieve something that you can't see. No, he's a real person. You can grieve him. And also, you can resist him. In Acts 7, verse 51, you can resist the Holy Spirit. God, help us if we resist him. I've done enough resisting him. I don't want to resist him anymore. I want him to have full sway in my heart. Don't you? I don't know, do you? I hope we say yes. Because that is where our life in Christ really begins. And that's the joy of being a Christian, is letting him have every bit of you, every bit of you. Don't resist him. Give him everything, unfettered access. Lord, consume me. Shine the searchlight of your spirit on this dark soul and remove everything and anything that is opposed to you. And I can also quench him. In Thessalonians 5 verse 19, it says that we can quench the Holy Spirit. That's like a flame. You can take that flame and you can pour water on it. And God help you if you do. You'll be one of the most miserable Christians in the world if you quench the Spirit. How would you feel if you quenched your, the person that you love the most? Maybe it's your spouse. If you're always a wet blanket on them, what's going to happen? It's, it's, gonna, it's not going to be a happy relationship, is it? And it's your fault. It's your fault because of what you have done. And God will continue to make overtures into your life, but don't think for a minute that you're not going to have the consequence of that quenching. You're going to feel horrible. Many Christians today are feeling horrible because they're, all they're doing is resisting and quenching the Spirit of God. And they're grieving Him because they are doing things they know they ought not to do, and he's encouraged them over and over again, and they just keep putting up their hand. Nope, 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 nope. And God says, okay. And many people live miserable Christian lives. It doesn't mean that they're not going to heaven, but they're going to be miserable. So let's read. Verse 15, we already looked at the first uh, 14 verses, but let's look at John chapter 14. We'll just read from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. Notice what Jesus said to them in the, the, in the upper room, his disciples. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you, notice, another, or in, if you've got a King James, it'll say a, a, another comforter or the comforter that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Underline that phrase. He is with you and he will be in you. That is so critical to understand. He is with you and he will be in you. Two of the three different relationships that we're going to look at with, our, with the Holy Spirit. Notice what Jesus said. He says, and I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. He says, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will, you will also live. And at that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. 
And he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Notice again the dependence that Jesus had on the Father. He wasn't a loose cannon. He was completely in sync with his Father. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're, they're not, they don't have differences of opinion. They are all one. And so they, everything they do is of the same heart, the same motivation, everything that they do. These things, he says in verse 25, I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, or the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. And let not your heart be troubled, and neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. And if you love me, you would rejoice, because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, again, I love that, Jesus the Good Shepherd, telling them ahead of time, preparing them. That's all this meal, all this, um, this dialogue, that, or this what Jesus is sharing with them right now, that's what it's all about. It's preparing them. They need preparation because the proof of it is when he was arrested, what happened? Did they all stay with him because they were well prepared? Jesus prepared for them well. He prepared them, but they all scattered. They still didn't quite get it, but it wasn't because of something he didn't do. No, he gave them every opportunity And I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, and let us be going. Arise, and let us be going. Let's go back to verse 1 here. Notice what it says there, if. I would encourage you to underline the word if, because it is a conditional statement. If you love me, then do this. If you love me, keep my commandments. It is a conditional statement. If and keep. Those two things are the modifiers here. If you love him, then keep his commandments. Throughout the scripture, we see that the Lord gives conditional promises and unconditional promises. The conditional promises require us to do something before God will do something. And that makes sense, doesn't it? A condition means if you do this, I will do this. A good example of a conditional promise is in 1 Kings. And let me just read it to you. You can write down the reference. It's 1 Kings uh, chapter 9. I got them up here on the screen. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 4 through 7. It says, and this is God appearing to Solomon the second time. And he says, now, Solomon, if, if you, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I've commanded you, and if... You keep my statutes and my judgments. Notice verse 5. Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you, here's the condition again, if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, verse 7, then I, 
then I. If you, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I gave them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Did he do that? He did. He had their temple burnt down. As he said this to, in Kings, later on, Nebuchadnezzar in 606, and then finally in 586, he actually torched the temple and took them all captive. He did do that. But the unconditional promise are things that God is going to do regardless of our performance or our obedience. We see this in Genesis 15 in the Abrahamic covenant. What did he say to, to, to Abraham? God says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham, for I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, look, you have given me no offspring, and indeed one born of my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall be not your heir, but one who will come from your own body and shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to number them, Abram. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And there's a lot more about that uh, in that chapter, but basically God unilaterally gave him a promise, and it had nothing to do with Abram's performance of it. That's an unconditional promise. And I love those because I have a tendency to mess things up. There are certain things that are conditional and there are certain things that are unconditional. Let me read something to you out of Second Samuel and I want you to tell me uh, if it's conditional or unconditional. But let me set it up for you. We're in Second uh, Samuel verse 7. This is the uh, Davidic covenant that God gave to David. And it says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, he, God was speaking through Nathan, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took for you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who were on the earth. And then here's the phrase, here's the passage, and I want you to tell me whether this is unconditional or conditional. This is God speaking. He says, Moreover, I will appoint you a place, a, uh, excuse me, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. And I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. And also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, David, you will rest with your fathers, and I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is that a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? Mm -hmm. Unconditional. This is what I'm going to do, God says. This is what I'm going to do. And yet in that same the very next verse, in verse 14, tell me what this is. You probably know what it is already because I've already set it up. Notice what the Lord says to him. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and the blows of the son of man. Is that a conditional statement? It's conditional. You can always know the condition when it says if. 
If this happens, then I will do this. Conditional promise. And then in the very next verse, what is this? But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Conditional or unconditional? Exactly. If you love me, if you love me, then do something about it. If you love me, faith without works is dead. I can say that I love Jesus all my life, but if I don't have, there's nothing backing it up. My faith is pretty shallow. How can I know that it's for real? Again, my works don't just, I mean, it's not what gets me to heaven. My faith in Christ gets me to heaven, right? But if I love him, it ought to change my life radically, right? It seems pretty easy to understand if we really love Jesus, if we really love God, we'll listen to him, we'll obey him. But, but what best way to show somebody that you love them than to be willingly submissive and obedient to that person? That's how we show love. See, love is not just a feeling, but it's a purpose of the will. True love shows itself. James tells us that faith without works is dead, and I believe also that love without works is dead also. You can tell me you love me all you want, but if it doesn't result in action, it's empty, empty words. Many wives have heard their husbands, and many husbands have heard their wives, oh, I love you, but there's no real love because there's no submission, there's no true obedience to one another. Keep my commandments, he says. In John's epistle, he said, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, loves him also who begot him. And he goes on, he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They really aren't burdensome, are they? They're very simple, actually. But practically, it is a challenge, isn't it? It really is. Simple to say, we can say it all we want, and they are very simple, but in practice, that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where we are going to be challenged right to the core, because walking in the light, walking in the spirit, walking in the truth can be hard. In fact, it's harder than walking in the darkness, because if you're walking in the darkness, you can just lie through your teeth and get away with it, at least for a season, and walk away. But no, walking in the light means confronting things. Who, who likes to be confrontational? Who likes to be, you know, dealing with it? Folks, we've got things in our life that we need to deal with. We can't just skirt them under the rug anymore. We have to walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we are giving in to the flesh and wrestling with the will of God for our life, it's going to be difficult. But the greater our will is surrendered to his, and the more we love him, the less difficult I believe it can be, because within us we know that there's two natures battling for dominance. This old nature that wants to, reveal, wants to express itself in the deeds of the flesh, and then the new nature, the Spirit of God who has indwelt us, if you're a Christian, then that is true. And there's a new nature, that new nature wants to have dominance over that old nature, And we have to let it. The Apostle Paul knew this very well. In Romans chapter 7, verse 8, he says this. 7, excuse me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I would do, 
I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me. And notice he's speaking of his own self, converted. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity of the law of sin, which is in my members, O wretched man that I am. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? And Paul gives us the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. He's the one who's going to deliver us from this body of death. It's Jesus. Real, true love will motivate us to do things that money or any other coercion could not accomplish. If you love me, keep my commandments. What many will not do, even for money, a believer will do for Jesus, willingly and sacrificially. What many will not do, even for money, a believer will do for Jesus, willingly and sacrificially. Notice in verse 16, back in our text, it says, Jesus says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. This word helper or comforter is in the Greek, it is parakletos, which means uh, someone, a, a, an intercessor, a consoler, an advocate, somebody who draws alongside of you. And Jesus wasn't going to be with his disciples after his ascension into heaven. And so he made sure that they had another helper, a comforter. They would certainly need it. And you and I need it today more than ever. And notice that the Holy Spirit would abide with us forever. He's not just going to come and then leave and leave us. He is going to stay with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. Because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, he's able to minister to many more and people all over the world all at the same time. And again, notice that it's a he, not a she. Am I a male chauvinist? Or am I just reading the word of God? Reject any translation or book that personifies God or his Holy Spirit any other way, period. Whether they use it or she, it is God's word. Not anyone else's. It's not even the, trans, the people who made the translation. It's not up to them to switch um, pronouns in this pronoun freaked out world that we live in. How many pronouns are there? There's like over 100 now. It's like, are you serious? What's the matter with people today? The spirit of Antichrist, that's what happened. And that's what people are believing. Shame on them, especially in the schools. These kids are forming. Their minds are forming, and they're telling them that he's a she and she. And Maybe you're an it. I don't know. How do you feel today? It's like, give me a break. Give me a break. They've lost their minds. And folks, if you've got kids in a public school, you'd better start speaking up. People are starting to speak up, and things are changing. But if you don't speak up, guess what? The tidal wave of refuse is going to roll over your kids. And who knows how long we're going to be here before the Lord returns. We don't know. So we better be in the game, right? We better be involved. Christ is in control. Jesus is in control. I know that. 
but I'm not going to lay over and die and let them run over and just continue to run over. No, I'm gonna, I want, when the rapture comes, I want to be fighting. I want to be resisting the spirit of Antichrist until the moment I am lifted off this earth, and then guess what? It's coming in like a tidal wave, and that's what God is going to do. Seriously. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Notice the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Jesus speaking to his disciples, and the Lord is speaking to you, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Do you notice the two different things there? And notice that the world whose eyes are closed, they can't do three things. The world who doesn't want to know Jesus right now, they can't certainly receive him yet. They can't see him yet, and they don't know him yet. God wants them to, wants to know them, but it is not until the Spirit of God comes alongside of them and alongside of us that we can then receive him, we can see him, and we can know him, for he dwells with you. The Greek word is para. It means coming alongside That's what the helper does. That's what the comforter does. The parakletos in the Greek, that's what it means. He comes alongside of us. That is why Jesus said in that verse, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. With you. This is when the Spirit of God woos us. Guys, do you remember when you wooed your wife, when you were getting her to like you? You tried everything you could to get her to like you because she really couldn't stand you beforehand. But then you're, you're doing all these things to try and, you know, make yourself look good. You know, I remember when Kathy and I first were courting, she didn't like mustaches, and I had a mustache. Is it okay for me to say this? I'm going to say it anyway, I guess, right? But she hated mustaches, and I wanted to look older, you know, so I had this mustache, and I'm like 20-something. You know, and so as soon as she told me as a friend that, oh, I just can't stand mustaches, I literally got a ticket on the way home that night. I'm not kidding. I got a ticket because I went home, and the first thing I did is I shaved that mustache off. I shaved it off. And I was trying to woo her. I was trying to do everything I could in my power, especially because of all my deficiencies, trying to get her to see and try to win and you know, get her to love me. I'm really not that bad, even though I got a tail and pointy ears. You know, pull off the tail and pull off the ears. So did everything I could. And see, that's what the Spirit of God does. He woos us. He comes alongside of us. You remember those moments when somebody was preaching to you or sharing the Word of God with you? And you were considering it for a moment. You had a moment of clarity where you're really starting to think about it. That's when the Spirit of God is coming alongside of you. He is with you. He's not in you yet because you haven't made the profession of faith. But when you do, oh, how wonderful it is. What does it tell us? I love this in Proverbs. He says, Uh, Solomon said, there are three things which are too wonderful for for me, yes, four, which I do not know. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. These things are mysteries. This courting phase of a man and a woman, it is so beautiful and it's so mysterious, isn't it? It's the moment when both hearts are the most fragile and they're right about at at the Rubicon of finally opening up their hearts like they've never done before. Isn't that amazing? That is a really serious thing. When you fall in love for the first time, and you finally open up your heart and you're saying, you know what, you have the most, you have the greatest opportunity to wound me the greatest and yet love me the most. And I am choosing. 
to let you in. Take care of it. But that kind of love is powerful, and it transcends races, it transcends social statuses, it transcends many things. But the Spirit of God is wooing us, is similar to how a man courts a woman. He shows great interest, tells you how beautiful you are to him. Whisper sweet and maybe precious promises to you. He wants to spend as much time as, as possible with you. Wants to have a deeper and more intimate relationship with you after the wedding ring, of course, and after, the, uh, after the, the, the marriage, of course. But why does he do this? Why is he wooing you? Because he loves you. He loves you. Which leads us to the very second thing that Jesus said here in verse 17. Notice, and he will be in you. The Greek word is E-N-N. It means in, just like what you would think it would is what it means. And this is actually when the Spirit of God indwells you. He comes alongside of you, wooing you, getting you to have interest, showing you things, and you're like, wow, that's really awesome. And then finally you get to the point where, you know, I believe, I believe. And then the Spirit of God comes into you. Those are two different things that the Spirit of God does, at least two. There's a third one we'll talk about. But the presence of the Holy Spirit within is what makes you a Christian, and that's the only thing that makes you a Christian. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. It's the same Greek word, en. It means in. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, listen to this, very important. Let me repeat it. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ in you, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, because the Spirit of life is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. In you. He comes alongside of you, and then he comes into you, and then you are a child of God. Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. I'd encourage you to read it. We don't have time. You know, time is really my enemy. I look at the clock, and I'm just like... (laughs) I don't know about you, but this is exciting. Isn't it exciting? Let's back. Let me read John, thir- John chapter 3, at least the first eight verses, and then we'll probably have to stop and take communion. It's amazing. But the Spirit of God in you. Does everybody understand that? He, he comes alongside of you. That's where we get the word with you as para. He comes alongside. And then at the moment you give your heart to Christ, he comes into you. It's very important to understand this. And then later we're going to also look that he's going to come upon you And those are the three experiences, the three relationships we have with the Holy Spirit that are in the Scripture. But when he comes into you, remember as John was speaking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a very religious man. He believed in God. He believed in God. But his understanding was off. And Nicodemus is in heaven. I believe he is. Because he believed in who Jesus said he was. 
all the scriptures of the Old Testament were leading up to the very summation of all those scriptures. It was bodily and right before him in Jesus Christ. The word of God made flesh and dwelt among us. There he is standing right in front of Nicodemus, a very religious man. But he didn't have the spirit of God in him. And he tried to talk to Nicodemus about this. He says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night. We've already looked at this. He came to him by night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He can't see it, he can't perceive it. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And his mother's going, No, thank you very much. But he's speaking of a spiritual birth, born from above. That's literally what born again means. And when you're born again, that's when the Spirit comes into you, when the Spirit of God indwells you. Then you are a Christian bound for heaven. And when God does that, he doesn't take it back. He doesn't place his Spirit within you at the moment you um, receive him and then take it away when you mess up. It's a new relationship in the New Testament. The Old Testament saints didn't have that. The Spirit of God came upon them at different times, but then left as well. The Bible shows us that. But when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, the very night of his resurrection, he breathed on his disciples. We'll look at more of this next week. He breathed upon them and he said, Receive the Holy Ghost. And they receive the Spirit of God into them. And Jesus also told them that night, wait for the promise of the Father. When the Spirit of God comes upon you, a whole separate thing. But he he comes inside of them. He dwells inside of them. So there's a lot to talk about because there's a lot more to this. And I've really spent a a lot of time really praying and thinking about this because there are questions that I had, and maybe there's questions that you have that we'll address next week again. But be encouraged, folks. For some of you today, for some of you who are in earshot or in eyesight of this message, the Spirit of God is drawing alongside of you. You're, you're, you're tasting right now to see if the Lord is good. And he is good, by the way. Taste a little more and you'll find that he's really good. But he wants to, he's drawing alongside of you, but he wants you to swallow the hook now with the bait. There's nothing worse than going fishing. Having been down in Florida, you know, you can throw your shrimp out or your mullet head or whatever it is that you've got you're fishing with. And whatever it is you're fishing with grabs a hold of it and then it lets it out. And for the fishermen, that's not exciting. You want to swallow it and bring it up and have ownership, right? And that's what God wants for each of us. He's drawn alongside of some of you. He's still drawing alongside of you, but you haven't made that that decision. You haven't made the decision yet. But you know what? God loves you right where you're at. He's not upset with you. He loves you. 
why don't you take that extra step and say, Lord, I'm tired of just having you walk alongside of me. And at different times in my life, I've seen you interacting with me through other people, and I've just kind of held you at arm's length. Well, maybe today, let today be the time that you say, I'm done with that. And say, Lord, consume this vessel. You don't have to be afraid. I've done that, and I want him to continue to do it. I want him to continue to search me. I want him to continue to have everything that he wants out of my life. Do you want that as well? I believe you do. Because why else would you be here? Seriously, why would you come to church if it's just to make you feel good? Or maybe it makes you feel bad. Maybe you come to church and you hear about what a scoundrel I am. Meaning all of us. You included. If that's all it was, I mean, the church would be empty. That's That's like sheep abuse. You're just a bunch of rotten scoundrels. You know, I mean, who's going to come to a church like that? But if somebody says, well, yes, you are a rotten scoundrel, but God loves you and there's a path for you and it's through Christ. He wants to give you his spirit. He wants to totally change your life and you're heaven bound now. Now just enjoy the walk. Isn't that better? But I have to talk about the other stuff first. I have to be, come to a, an understanding that I am a rotten, filthy creature. I have to know that first before I can receive the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. And hopefully all of you have done that today. Hopefully all of you have done that. But if you haven't, I want to invite you today to make that decision for Christ. Make the decision. And even after this service, I would encourage you, if you are on the fence and you're just kind of thinking that, well, I think I'm a Christian, but I really don't, I don't know, I don't have the assurance. Whatever it is, come up and let's pray with you. Pray with somebody. I'm more than happy to, the elders and the pastors, if we see people coming up, we'll come up with you and we'll pray with you. But don't leave this place, folks. The time is too short. Time is too precious and things are happening at such a rapid rate. Can't you see that we are approaching the end? We are approaching the end that Jesus spoke of. It's coming. It's been like a freight train in the last two years. Has anybody seen it? I have. It's brought me to my knees in tears. I'm excited at one point, but I'm also very um, totally blown away at how quickly things have been happening. And folks, if they continue like this, if they continue... How can we resist it any longer? How can we resist Christ any longer? You'd be a fool to resist him. Don't resist him. Don't quench him. Come to him in faith and say, God, come into this rotten heart of mine and fill me and consume me and forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins that I've ever committed, even the ones I don't even remember, even the things that I have yet to do, Lord. Cover it all in your blood, and he will be faithful to do so. But you have to be willing. You have to be willing. Are you willing? And maybe, maybe you're already a bought and sold out Christian. Praise the Lord for that. Keep that fire. Keep it going. Keep that fire. Keep that pilot light nice and hot every single day. Let, it, let the Lord turn up the fire. Let the fire be turned up, folks. The world out there, your family, your friends, your coworkers, they need to see us believing what we're reading, 
believing what we're saying. Because if we don't, they have no reason to come to Christ. Then it's just another club. It's just another social club. You know, church to most people is just a social gathering. They enjoy coming. You know, there are people like that. And I'm glad they're here, don't get me wrong. But there are people who like to just come to church for the coffee. I don't know if it's really that good, but, but maybe it is. They come for the coffee. They come for the desserts. They come for the meal to fellowship and hang out and talk about sports. Hey, listen, there's nothing wrong with talking about sports and all that other stuff. But listen, if that's all you're coming for, you're missing out on most everything. You have to get over that and come to Christ and let him take care of all of you. Take all of your heart. Will you let him take all of you today? At the end of the service today, if you have not given your heart to Christ, would you please come up? The Spirit of God is pleading with you. And this may be the only opportunity that you get. It may be because some people... We don't have any confidence or any assurance that this day may be our last. And are you playing Russian roulette with your faith and thinking that, yes, I'm a Christian because I, I give a lot to the church, I do this, I do that, but there's no Spirit of God in you? If there's any doubt, why not come forward and let's pray? And if you're sincere, God's going to take up residence. I can tell you that right now. You don't have to beg him. All you got to do is ask him and be honest and faithful. And he will do all the rest. And then the sanctification just takes time. And it's a lifetime thing, isn't it? He's going to continue to conform me to his image, slowly transforming me, removing the world from me, and then putting me into a different world that he dwells. I need that. You need that. So when we are done, we're going to pray. We're going to take communion this morning. But after communion, after we sing a last song, Would you please, if you haven't made that decision, come up and we'll be glad to pray with you. Don't wait any longer. You don't have tomorrow. You you don't have the assurance of tomorrow. You have the assurance of this moment. Don't put it off any longer. I beg you. I think of how volatile my life was. When I was 24 years of age, I had already been through so much. I should have been dead. I'm not kidding. And most of you can say the same thing. Before I was 24 and gave my heart to Christ, there were so many instances in my life. My life should have been snuffed out. And had it been, I would have gone straight to hell. I would have gone straight to hell. Mystery of mysteries at 24, God comes into my life and lights me up. And I am so thankful because right now I'm going to heaven. Are you going to heaven? 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 If you believe in Christ and the Spirit of God is in you, guess what? You're going to heaven. You're going to heaven. If we could have the worship team come on up and we're going to uh, pray. We'll take communion together. While we're uh, worshiping, come up and grab the elements, take them back to your seat. We'll take them together, okay? Father, we just thank you for this time together and pray that Jesus, that you would be glorified in this place. And Father, we pray for every heart here. Lord, that you would soften it. Lord, there's a song we used to sing, Soften My Heart with Oil. Lord, your Holy Spirit is that oil. Would you soften our hearts with oil?
again and help us to be honest with you again, maybe even for the first time. And Lord, we thank you for the bread and the cup and all that it represents, and we look forward to taking it with you shortly. So we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. When Jesus was in this upper room with his disciples before he would be taken wrongfully and accused wrongfully and finally paying the price, before it had even happened, Jesus, at the end of the Passover meal, he took the bread and the cup. And he opened, he took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around to his disciples. He says, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. And so let's go ahead and do that. Let's take the token. And when he had done that, he also took the cup and he passed it around. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant which I will shed for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. And aren't you blessed today that the blood of Jesus Christ hopefully has washed every single one of us in this room and that we can have the assurance of salvation? Why? Because we're good people? No, because of what he has done. What God has done. He deserves the praise and the adoration and the thanksgiving. And so, Lord, we take this cup in remembrance of the blood that was shed on our behalf, securing us to heaven. In Jesus' name, let's partake. Praise the Lord. What a joy. If you could do us a favor, as you leave the sanctuary today, there are uh, garbage cans next to the doors. If you could please put these nice little hermetically sealed things into that trash can, that would be really helpful. Why don't we stand together, low, and let's pray, and then um, let's finish with one song. Yeah? So, Father, we just thank you for this time together. Please, Lord, uh, just uh, bless us, Lord, and help us to come to you, Lord. For anyone in this room, we pray that after this song, God, that they would come forward and they'd receive you into them and that they would be one of yours forever, Lord. Thank you for indwelling all, for all of us who have and we know, God. Just thank you for that provision. Without you, we'd be, we'd be miserable, Father. And thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.